get our Bibles out this morning. We're in Philippians chapter 2 as we preach our way through the book of Philippians. This morning, as we jump in, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 of Philippians chapter 2. Remember, Paul's in chains. He's under house arrest. He's writing to the Philippian church that he planted and mentored. He loves them. He's writing an epistle of joy in chains. And that should speak to us. Wherever you are this morning, whatever you're struggling with, you know, in talking to people many times when we're going through stuff, we act surprised. But God never said that our lives would be struggle-free. My wife was reminding me that yesterday that, you know, there's always those struggles. And so we don't, we don't like struggle and we like peace and we like ease. Anybody, anybody need like a, just a vacation from trouble? <laughs> I mean, it gets dark out there and it gets overwhelming. And a scripture that popped into my spirit this week was that uh, in the last days there would be such lawlessness that the love of many would wax cold. Lawlessness is uh, just people who refuse to do the things that God requires us to do, refuse to embrace justice and embrace darkness and corruption. We see that all around us. And the effect of that is that it can wear the righteous out to the point where their love for God gets cold. Uh, I'm just been, you know, that's been brewing in me. Maybe there's a message in there, but keep the faith and keep your eyes on Jesus. And keep your love alive, amen? Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy being like-minded, having the same love being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, just four verses there, but so much powerful uh, wisdom and such precious principles that the Word of God is giving us here today. You know, the last two verses, I said to the first service, uh, these verses really would grate against the flesh. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let us think of others better than ourselves. Think about that for a second. When you would look at some another and care more for them and more for their needs and more for their peace and more for their soul than you even care for yourself. Parents understand this to a degree with their children. But, you know, just something that would grate against it. And let us not look out for only our own interests. Sure, we got to look out for ourselves, because if we don't do the things required of us, we're going to be in trouble. Amen. Thank God we got up this morning. We brushed our teeth. We put clothes on. I'm thankful for all of those actions this morning. That we pay our bills, that we go to work, that we are productive individuals. Amen. Those are our interests, and yes, we have to serve them to a degree, but Christianity is others-centered. 
So let's unpack what Paul says here to this church that he loves. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of spirit, if any affection and mercy. He's starting off listing some of the attributes of the body of Christ, but he's coming from a place where he's a little hurt. If you remember when we were in chapter 1, Paul had found himself in chains, and while he was under Roman house arrest and being brought around from one judge to one ruler to one leader to the next, there were those in the church that saw Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to advance themselves. And even in the body of Christ, we saw that some supported Paul, and some looked at him and said, we can't wait to get this guy out of the way so we could take his spot in the ministry. And Paul's coming from a place where he's a little hurt over that. Why? Because that's a division in the body of Christ, and it's a division that uh, directly impacts him and hurts the church that he loves. Now, listen to me. Division in any family is upsetting. We just had Thanksgiving, and I pray that this didn't happen at your Thanksgiving table, but sometimes the Thanksgiving table can be explosive. Anybody? You know that one uncle, that one aunt, that one cousin that you invite. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's probably you. They were like, should we invite them this year? But, you know, things can happen at at family gatherings, at the Thanksgiving Day table, on Christmas Day. Conflicts, divisions, uh, things that are hurtful. And, And they are hurtful, and it's hurtful in God's family. It's no difference, the division in our immediate biological family says there's division in the church except it hurts the church in a way that it can't function spiritually division among christians is a sad thing and paul is a little hurt over what's going on in the philippian church now there was an issue of national geographic that included a photograph of the fossilized remains of two saber-toothed tigers locked in combat they died trying to kill one another, and they were fossilized that way. Uh, Each cat had bitten deeply into the leg bone of the other, and each refused to let go and sealed their fates. The cause of their death was as clear as the cause of the extinction of their species. They were against each other. Listen, when Christians fight against Christians, everybody loses. And Paul warns us in Galatians 5.15, if you keep biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. What those two cats fail to realize is they were of the same species, the same team. Them wiping themselves out wiped out the species. Christians wiping each other out hurts the body of Christ. God help us. Any cats out there? Stop biting, let go, stop scratching, stop fighting, same team. It used to drive me crazy when we would go watch my, my sons play basketball all through since they were little kids, and you would see, especially little kids, a ball would go up, and you'd get three kids from the same team fighting over the ball. And as a parent, you know, as a mild-mannered parent sitting in the stands with my super large Dunkin' Donuts caffeinated I'm I'm saying, same team, same team. You know, you're yelling and screaming. My wife is like, oh, my. But it used to drive me nuts. Same team you got there on the ground. They're they're, they're, they're pulling each other apart. That's the way it is when Christians fight one another. Same team, same team. Stop. 
with the devouring. Stop with the division. Paul's coming from a place of hurt here, but he uses it as an opportunity to speak into the body of Christ about the oneness and the unity that should be there. We should have oneness in the church. We should have unity in the church. If you look around this morning, there's diversity. There's diversity. Look around this morning. Look around. Stop looking at me. Look at each other. We're a diverse group. I mean, look at what God has done. Amen? But yet there's a oneness here because of Jesus. There's a oneness because of Jesus. Amen? Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. <laughs> and so because of that oneness, there should be a unity. And Paul's hurt that he's not seeing the fullness of that unity in the Philippian church. Now, verse 1 kind of lists five assets that should be in the body of Christ. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, we, we should be able to come into the presence of God and leave encouraged. Look, even when the Holy Spirit's convicting us after it, we leave encouraged, Amen. That's the faithful wounds of a friend, that even when we're corrected or we're convicted, we leave encouraged. If there's any encouragement in Christ, that's one asset. How about, you know, any consolation or uh, any comfort in love, fellowship of the Spirit? We, we have this unity, this fellowship among brothers and sisters that's uncommon even in families. That because of, did you ever get with a Christian that you just met? And you got to talking to them for like three, three to five minutes and you feel like you've known them your whole life? What is that? That's the Jesus in them connecting it with the Jesus in you, amen. That's the bond of the Spirit. That's the fellowship of the church. Come on. Are you thankful for that this morning? Paul's listing the assets of the church. If there's any affection, any compassion, you know, we have affection for each other. Why? Because we have the same heavenly father, because we have the same savior, because we're filled with the same spirit, amen? Affection. You know, people should like you. People should care for you within the church, and they do. Compassion. Boy, does the world need compassion. So quick to judge, so quick to tear down, so quick to say, well, you deserve it. But in Christ, in the body of Christ, in the church, there should be compassion. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I know you messed up. Hey, I know it's hard. I know it wasn't your fault. Hey, come on, let me put my arms around you and love you. Let me, let me speak a blessing over you. Let me pray for you. Come on, compassion. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I need compassion every once in a while, Amen. <laughs> All of us, including Paul, need the support of other Christians. He was, he was showing them here in this weakened state of where he's afflicted, he's lost his liberties and changed. I need you guys. I need you guys to be there for me, to support me, to pray for me. And, and those of you who are salivating over, you know, my position, stop it and fall in line and have the unity of spirit here to understand that, you know, it's about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of men. At some time, you and I, on some level, are going to need encouragement. We're going to need love. We're going to need fellowship, affection, compassion, all those things Paul just listed. We're going to need them, and we will not be able to generate them ourselves. We're going to need them from our brothers and sisters. Well, I go right to God, and we should go to God, and he does comfort us, but there's something special about the body of Christ, about those we can touch, those we can see, those we can hear, those who we can look into their eyes and, and listen to the words of encouragement. Amen. No believer can fly solo forever. 
It's dangerous. It disrupts your spiritual growth. It hinders the effectiveness of the body of Christ. Do you know why the body of Christ doesn't function like it should many of times? We got too many missing components, too many missing people. They're not here. They're not plugged in. They're not using their gifts. We're missing parts. Come on, did you ever try to build something and you had missing parts? More likely we build stuff and have parts left over. That's bad too. But the body of Christ, we need each other. We can't function uh, solo as believers. You know, I, I run into people all the time throughout the years. Uh, I, I've been in full-time ministry almost 30 years. You know, I hear people, well, you know, I love Jesus, but I, uh, what church do you go to? I don't go to church. And, I, and right away, that's a huge red flag for me. Because Jesus said that we should be in church, and that as we see the day approaching so much more, we should be together in the church, that we need each other. But if you don't go to church and you're a Christian, how do you, how do you take your place in the body of Christ? I mean, that's just a little weird to me. What do you do, get up on Sunday and put your nice clothes on and get in the mirror and preach a sermon to yourself? Do you, do, you, do you say, well, I'm going to preach a sermon, then you give an offering to yourself? Or, you know, do you, do you use your spiritual gifts to minister to others? I mean, it's just too weird when you're supposed to be part of a family, but you insist on flying solo. And it's going to stunt your spiritual growth, and it's going to make you an easy mark for the devil. And you're going to get sucked back into the world because we need each other. Amen. You know... I, I thought this was more exciting than it was because, you know, first service, they were just looking at me while I was preaching. But I get excited about this, you know, about needing each other and having each other. You know, if the two years of isolation taught us anything, what a blessing we have in the gift of each other. Amen. To be part of the family of God, to be part of the body of Christ, to have people who are like-minded in the faith, who trust God, who believe God, who don't bow to fear, who hope in the Lord, who are looking for his coming. In verse 2, you know, Paul says, make my joy complete. And I love this, fulfill my joy or make my joy complete, being like-minded, having the same love and being of one accord and one mind. So there's a, there's a lot in there in verse 2, but he starts talking about his joy. Now, listen, when he says make my joy complete, he's really alluding to the fact that his joy was being hindered. You see, those who were not doing the right things while he was in this precarious position were kind of stifling his joy. You know, and there again, we can get all super spiritual and say, well, you know, the, I have the joy of the Lord and joy is from the Lord and I don't need anybody else and nobody can affect my joy and I'm in a little joy bubble all by myself enjoying my joy. <laughs> Come on, let's get real in the house of God. There are people who can affect your joy. Now, Paul didn't say that he, they completely took it, but he said, make my joy complete. You see, they affected it. Why? Because, listen, if you're in a marriage and your spouse is disconnected from you or upset at you or there's conflict there, that's going to affect your joy. If you're a parent and your children are hurting or they're wayward, that's going to affect your joy. Listen, there are people who can affect our joy. And I know, you know, that, that doesn't sound super spiritual to preach, but it's the truth anyhow. Now, we should minimize the amount of people that we allow of, to affect our joy. Well, I can't be happy unless everybody does what they're supposed to do. And Boy, is that a bad spot to put yourself in. People are about as 
you know, they're, they're never going to do everything. They're never going to do the, you're always going to have somebody. There's one in every crowd. There's one in every family. And then we have special days. You know, you ever have one of those special days? You, you don't even want to be around yourself. But if we let people affect our joy too much, you know, we're always going to be in a state of panic. We're always going to be in a state of fear. But there are some relationships that can affect our joy. And Paul's saying, look, guys, let my joy be complete. Fall in line. Do the right things. Have the right heart. Don't fight amongst yourself. Don't destroy the unity that Jesus has given us as a gift. Division is something that is so destructive to the church and Paul, Paul wanted, you know, the division to go and there to be unity there. Why? So his joy can be complete. You know, the last thing this guy needed to worry about as he's in chains, literally uh, fighting for his life, as it were, uh, is to have all kinds of problems, you know, in the church that he loves, in the churches. And, you know, I mean, think about the stress that this guy dealt with. Just, you know, we got to make it real sometimes. Oh, you know, none of these guys in the Bible had stress. They just floated around on clouds and everything went good for them. No, they, they went through the same stuff that we go through. They, they went through the same stuff, that the, the same stresses, the same things. They had families. They had wives. They had wayward children. They had all of these things. Verse 2 gives us a picture of what unity should look like in the church, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. See, unity is having the same mind and the same love. It's not having the same preferences and opinions about everything. That's never going to happen, Amen. But we can have the same mind. We can have the same love. What do we have? We have the mind of Christ. It's fixed on doing the will of God. What love do we have? We have the love of God in our hearts, amen, because we've fallen in love with Jesus. And that's what gives us unity, amen. So no matter what my preferences or opinions are, well, I like this music, and I like that music, and I, I like this way to dress, and I like, well, that's preferences and opinion, and that's fine. But we've got to have unity on these foundational things that we love God, that we do his will, that we're in love with Jesus. That's a picture of unity. The things that divide God's people start in the way they think. And then we take our thoughts and we make those thoughts so important to the expression of our faith that they, our thoughts become idols. Well, I think this about how the church should function. Well, I think this about how the gospel should be preached. Well, I think this about how worship should be done. And now my opinion is so important and so right and obviously the only way to go that I'm going to make an idol out of it. And if you don't fall in line with it completely, then we, we don't have fellowship and there's division between us. And if you understand the principle I'm trying to communicate here, it's really behind all the denominations in the church. Now, I'm glad that there are different denominations in the sense that there's variety in the body of Christ. Amen. Are you happy when you go to the ice cream store and there's more than one flavor? I mean, if you went there and they had vanilla and uh, vanilla, vanilla and extra vanilla. Deluxe vanilla. I mean, uh, if it was all vanilla. Anybody like variety? Some of you scare me right now. Vanilla is the only flavor that Jesus used to like. And variety's good. But we can't allow things to fragment the body of Christ to destroy our unity. And that's what Paul is, is pushing at here. Make my joy complete. Have the same mind and the same love. You know, we take our opinions and our preferences and we make idols about them. 
And there are some that are so misguided in the church that they'll divide the body of Christ over non-essential doctrines, preferences, and opinions. Some examples like baptism. Do you, do you realize how divided the church is over baptism? You know, and people who are stuck on this stuff, they'll be like, well, how do you baptize? Do you dip? Do you dunk? Do you sprinkle? Do you splash? Do you spritz? Do you submerge? I don't care if you use a garden hose or a super soaker. The Bible says that we should baptize people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we should identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. You know, I believe immersion is the way to go because it identifies with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We get you in the tub. We hold you under. We wait for the bubbles to slow down a little bit. And then we bring you up. Oh, resurrection life there. Right, but really, like, we really got to fight about that? Oh, well, we do it this way. Well, we sprinkle. Well, we spritz. Well, we do submersion. And, and the body of Christ will divide. How about the gifts of the Spirit being implemented in the church? What about prophecy, healing, discerning of spirits, speaking in tongues? It's amazing to me. There's whole chapters in the Bible in, in Corinthians about speaking in tongues. And it says that, you know, some churches will say, well, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. That's ridiculous. Paul said, not all speak in tongues. But on the other side of the coin, you got churches that say, if you speak in tongues, that's the devil. And Paul said right in the same chapter, do not forbid the speaking in tongues. I wish people would get a Bible and read it before they broke up and started another denomination. How long is it going to take for the body of Christ to just understand the simple directives of Scripture without bringing division in? Oh, but we got to divide over us. And oh, well, uh, you know, and if you do that, well, you're of the devil. And if you don't do that, you're not saved. I mean, could we be any more ridiculous? What about, what do you believe about the end times? What's your eschatology? What's your view of the rapture? Do you believe in once saved, always saved? Do you believe in election? Do you leave, believe in predestination? And all these doctrinal divisions. Are you reformed? Are you unreformed? Are you deformed? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just trying to love Jesus. I never, I never... I don't fight about these things, about predestination and election. That God will sort it all out. In the book of Revelation, it talks about there, there's a time of silence in heaven. I believe that's the time where God's going to straighten out all our wacky theology. And everybody's going to be like, you know, getting the truth, and they'll be like, I'm sorry. You know, you don't even have to believe the truth for the truth to happen in your life. You know, there are people that don't believe in the rapture, that love Jesus, that are living for Jesus, that are going to be caught up in the rapture when God takes the church home. They're going to be going, what's going on? Woo! And all the Pentecostals and Evangelicals are going to go, we told you. We're ahead of you. But yeah, the Holy Spirit showed me that you don't even have to believe it. You just have to love Jesus and, and live for him and have oil in your lamp, amen. And, and people... People are like, well, is it a pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib? It's pan-trib. It's all going to pan out in the end. God will figure it out. And so we've got to stop dividing ourselves. The second half of, of verse 2 makes it clear how we do this. It says, you know, fulfill my joy and be like-minded, having the same love, being of one mind, it says there, or one accord, and one mind. So, uh, you know, I have a couple different translations. You might have, the, I use the New King James, I use the New American Standard, but same mind and same love. 
That's what we're looking at here. How do we have our joy complete? How do we have that unity? Well, we've got to have the same mind, the mind of Christ, the, the love of God. And, and, you know, we're united in spirit, it says, and in one purpose. Unity is a spiritual thing. And that's why we have to be united in spirit. It didn't say united in thoughts or preferences or intellect or understanding. Why? Because unity is spiritual, it's actually a miracle when you have unity amongst people. I said to look around and see how diverse we are. Yet we're all here today because we love Jesus, and we're all here today to hear the word of God because we believe the Bible. Come on, there's unity here. We've got that one, we've got that one mind. We've got that unity, and we've got to understand how it comes to us. Uh, I want to say something. You know... We find so many things to divide ourselves over that it's important for God's people to be aware of division and that, you know, it starts off in our thoughts and, and to protect unity. Unity is the byproduct of the spirit and division is the byproduct of the flesh. If you don't remember anything else today, remember that that when there's fighting and bickering and division and I'm right and you're wrong and I don't want to fellowship with you, that's the flesh. When there's, you know, I can overlook this and let's overlook that. We got Jesus in common and let, we're brothers and sisters. That's the spirit. And you get, like I said, you could take all the different people here. You could put 10 people in a room and throw a subject in and you're not going to get them all to agree on anything. And so when there's unity, it is spiritual and it is a miracle. And it's a gift that Jesus purchased for us. In the divided world... Maybe the church should stop dividing itself. Just a thought. In a divided world, maybe the church should stop dividing itself and walk in the unity that Jesus purchased for us on the cross with his own blood. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Spiritual unity, division is of the flesh. Ask yourself, is the flesh more spiritual I mean, is the church more spiritual or fleshly today? Think about that. Are we more divided than we've ever been before, or do we have more unity? God, help us. We should be praying that Jesus unifies the people of God. Amen. We need to be unified. Why? Because we need to speak with one voice to a generation that's lost its moral compass. Amen. If the world looks at us and thinks we're crazier than them, how are we going to help them? Oh, then, you know, yeah, the world is nuts, but the church is crazy. I pray that we hate division enough that we would pursue unity. I'll close this point down with Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Write that down. It's a scripture you should spend some time in. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, Paul speaking again, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness and longsuffering, bearing with one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Listen, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. There's where the unity lies. Now, the last two verses there again, we mentioned them in our introduction. They are going to grade against us a little bit. Uh, let nothing be done through selfish ambition and conceit. 
But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, this is easy to read and hard to do. Do you ever notice there's a lot of things in the Bible that are easy to read and hard to do? You know, oh, that rolled off the tongue really nice. Sounded good. To let others consider others better than themselves. Yeah, that's, that works for me. Until you try and do it. Because you know what? There's a little gremlin inside all of us that's like, it's all about me and I'm me first and I want the biggest piece of cake and I, and I want the drumstick off the turkey. And that. Anybody want to get real with me on Sunday morning? Now, usually when we become adults, we learn how to hide that a little bit. Kids just got, they go right out there. It's mine. You know, do you see two kids beating each other with a truck? Try to get them to share, share. They look at you like, share. But selfish ambition, that term in the text there in verse 3, can be translated from the Greek into the word contentious. And contentious mean, contentiousness is this, having a wearisome tendency to quarrel and dispute, to be controversial, to like to argue. Come on, you know any people like that? contentious people maybe you're thinking of someone maybe no one comes to mind there again it's probably you <laughs> i can't think of anyone like that it's me yeah it's me but contentious and that's what is the, the paul's telling us don't be contentious don't be you know wearisome and and quarrelsome disputing there's some people who like to fight about everything and whatever you say up they say down you say you know i mean they always got to be the contrarian and that's a contentious person. That's contentiousness. Now, Titus 3.9 warns us to steer clear of contentiousness in the church. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. Look what it says. Avoid it. Foolish controversies. Oh, no, this is a battle that we're going to fight to the death. Genealogies, the Jews used to fight about who begat who. And this guy begat this guy, and this begat this guy, and this, and this bloodline, and this genealogy, and I'm a descendant of him, and so blah, 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 blah. And, you know, they used to fight about that stuff all the time, strife and disputes about the law. Did you ever see two Christians arguing about Scripture? It's not, it's not a pretty thing. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Any questions? That's pretty clear. You don't need to do a word study on that. These foolish controversies, these fights about the genius, it's unprofitable and worthless. So the, the scripture is very clear that we should not be contentious. You know, people who are contentious, who like to fight, look, at, and I understand you know, we're not just talking about, you know, people out there in the world who are crazy. We're talking about the church. There are people in the church who like to argue. If you don't believe me, go on any Christian website, pick any topic, and then look at the comments. It's unbelievable. I don't even comment on anything. No matter what you say, Jesus loves you. Well, no, he doesn't. It says here in Matthew 17 that blah, blah, blah. he only loves the predestined. Oh, please. Humility is the prescribed antidote for someone who's contentious. Notice, you know, it says here, let no, nothing be done with selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. What's that? That's humility. 
to be lowly in mind is to not to think more of yourself than you ought. <clears throat> to be humble. And humility is a cure. Uh, you know, our intellect and our preferences and our opinions can easily become idols to us and our pride will demand that everybody think and believe and like the same things that we do. And humility is the only cure for that. People all around the world, including Christians, including in the church these days, take themselves way too seriously. Let me say that again. People take themselves way too seriously. Did you ever see these people on social media? They, they chronicle everything they're doing for the day. I'm up today, cup of coffee. Then they take a picture of their snack. Here's my snack. Then a picture of them, doing good. You know, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. I'm a social influencer. People hang on my every word. No, they don't. Not even your mother cares. She just, oh, that's nice, honey. We take ourselves way too seriously. Robert Hutchins said, it's not important to be serious as much as it's important to be serious about important things. Let's be serious about preaching the gospel, about loving people, about being compassionate to others, amen? Let's be serious about not being judgmental and mean-spirited. Let's be serious about that, but let's not take ourselves too seriously. You know, like I said, I've been in full-time ministry. It's getting on 30 years. And, you know, there have been times where, you know, people would try and say things to me to puff me up, to grease me up because they wanted something. You know, and being from the city, Pastor Mike, like we could spot that eight blocks down the road coming down the block. Here it comes. You know, here it comes, Charles, right? You could just see it. And, and they think, oh, you're the best in the pen. We'll never leave, and you're wonderful. And I'm like, kiss me now, Judas, and get it over with. You know, be careful. Don't let people manipulate you like that. We've got to be humble. We've got to be lowly of mind. We've got to not think more of ourselves than we ought. As believers, we need to relax. Turn to your neighbor and say, relax. God's got you. God's got you. He's going to perfect what concerns you. Relax. Maintain your joy. Speak the truth in love. Take comfort in the fact that God will straighten out all the crooked things himself. You know, sometimes we think we got to straighten out all the crooked things and we got to answer every uh, thing that's not correct and we've got to straighten out all the knuckleheads. It's our job. I can't let that go. Did you see what they posted? Now I need to roll up my sleeves and fight on the internet all day. Let God straighten it out. Relax. There is a Savior, and we're not him. There is a God, and we're not him. So we relax and maintain our joy, and we don't take ourselves too seriously. We can't miss the little gem here. In the last part of verse 3, regard one another as more important or better. Regard others as better than yourself. Living this principle requires that we carry our cross. Why? Because our flesh will never agree to think of anybody as more important than ourselves. So what do we got to do with that flesh? We got to nail it to the cross by carrying our cross every day. 
I, I had just heard some Christian song or some song lyric where it had talked about Jesus carrying our cross or something. And, I, you know, as I'm listening to it, I'm like, that's not right. Jesus carried his cross. But Jesus ain't going to carry my cross. I got a cross to carry. And the people, you're saying, that's right, Pastor. You better carry. You got one, too. It's perfect for you, made just for you, amen? You say, what's the cross designed to do? Designed to irritate us and, and rub us the wrong way so we can deal with our flesh? And what's the way to deal with our flesh and our pride and our opinions and our, you know, our contentiousness? Nail it to the cross. Think of others better than yourselves. This is like, you know, if people could rip one scripture out of the Bible, it would be probably this one, and the ladies would get rid of Proverbs 31. That'd be gosh. Right? Come on, ladies. Proverbs 32 is all about men. That's gone. Where'd it go? This is a slow crowd here this morning, man. There's no Proverbs 32, right? I knew it. The men took that out of there. So, you know, it's a difficult one. It causes us to confront our flesh, but to not think, you know, that we're the best and we're the most important and it's all about us. Verse 4 says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. There it is. Say others. This is the key here as I bring this down for a landing. We've got to look for the, you know, to the interests of others and put our pride in its place. Amen. You know, there are so many people who take themselves so seriously. One time Mark Twain called out a pompous local businessman. He was well known to be ruthless in his business dealings. And he announced to everyone and to Mark Twain, he said, before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. There I will climb Mount Sinai and I will read aloud the Ten Commandments from the top of the mountain. And Twain said, here, I got a better idea. Why don't you stay in Boston and keep them? Ouch. See, we always want to puff ourselves up. Who is this guy? What is he, Moses Jr. or something? You're going to march at the mountain, buddy? If you make it to the top, there's nobody up there to hear you. Take ourselves too seriously. Why? Because we're all about our own interests. And, and the text is really clear. Look out. You know, not only for your own interests, you have to do what's necessary for yourself, but also for the interest of others. Christianity is other-centered. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Jesus didn't come for himself. He came for us. Jesus didn't come to be worshipped. He came to save sinners. So there are two things that are required from uh, in this verse here to put others' interests before ours. And the first is this. We've got to become God-centered and so that we can become other-centered. If I'm all about me and myself, which my flesh is happy to do, I'm going to become the biggest obstacle to me serving others. You know, it's, if you look at people, you know, there was times, Pastor Mike, we were in the city at New York School of Urban Ministry doing ministry, and I was on Wall Street, and I watched people in $1,000 suits with $800 shoes step over homeless people like they were, they were garbage. I was like, how do you get to that place in life? I remember as a young man, as a young pastor, sitting in the gutter in Tompkins Square Park with someone who was hooked on crack as they were covered in their own urine, and they would just share their story with me. Turned out the man was a doctor. 
who got hooked on drugs and lost his wife and lost his medical license and lost his family, and he was down to nothing in the gutter. How is it that we can be so self-centered that we could walk over another human being like they're human rubble trash? You see, nothing hurts the heart of God more than a believer who's so self-centered that they can't see that someone else needs a hand up and a little compassion in life. Lord, help us to not be so self-centered that we forget about others, that we've been so blessed and given so much that we have a reservoir to pour out on the hurting and the broken. If I'm the biggest obstacle to dealing and serving with others, Lord, then deal with me. Number two, being humble enough to find out what others need is the second part of the equation. We've actually got to know what other people need so that in Jesus we can meet the need. You notice people who are very self-centered don't know that there are other people around them hurting? People who are very self-centered don't even notice there's other people around them. You're like, who are those? What are those things there? I'm the center of the solar system. And we as Christians need to take the time to find out what the needs of others are. You know, I said this to first service. I said, if you're married and you don't know your, the needs of your spouse, you are failing at marriage. If, I, if someone comes to me and goes, well, how's your wife doing? What, what's, her need? What's, what's her need? I don't know. Why not? If as a man, I, I'm going through stuff and, you know, my wife doesn't even notice that I'm hurting, I'm broken, that, that, that's failing at marriage. If we have children and we don't know what they're going through and what they need and we don't take the time to listen to them, we're failing at parenting. If we walk past people every day who don't know Jesus and we don't take the time to find out what their needs are, we're failing as Christians. We've got to take the time, invest the time, stop thinking about ourselves for enough time to learn what other people are going through. What do people in our community need? This is something as pastors and ministers we ask ourselves. I, I remember sitting with pastors. I remember sitting with you, Gucci, and just saying, what's the need of our community? What do people need? You know, if people need this and we're giving them that and we're not reaching anybody, then we have to recalibrate how we reach out. What do people in the community need? Do they need love? Then let's find out ways to love them. Do they need fellowship? Uh, do they need, uh, you know, uh, someone to uh, provide them uh, counseling, deliverance, marriage counseling, financial counseling, support groups? What does our community need? And I'm really kind of asking you, Full Gospel Center, what, what does our community need? What does Grange need? Or, oh, let's have a pizza party for them. They don't need pizza. Maybe they need marriage counseling. Maybe they need financial help. This is why we do marriage ministry in the church. This is why we do, you know, financial counseling in the church, to meet needs. And I want to close with this. Find the need, meet the need, touch the heart, and save the soul. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, we thank you this morning that... Men like the Apostle Paul walked the earth that had a heart for the things of the kingdom, for the people of God, that he was more concerned about the souls of others than he was about his own hardship or his own body or his own, his own final demise. God, give us a heart like that for this generation. <clears throat> God, help us to 
be other-centered, to find out what those around us need. Father, show us, reveal to us how we can reach out to the lost all around us in an effective way that, Lord, we, we could bring them the need that's on their heart and meet it, Lord God, and touch their hearts and save their souls, Lord God, with the gospel. Make us effective. Make us other-centered. Let our joy be complete. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give him praise this morning.